Now, we had a lot of questions last week, which was great. Um, well, you guys are coming in here in the middle. Actually, almost the end. But that's okay. I'm so happy to see you guys today. Um, so we had a lot of questions last week, so we did not get all the way through chapter three, which means we're not gonna do chapter four today. We're gonna, we're gonna finish up chapter three. And then next week, Dave Witt is going to do chapter four and finish off the series. Um, so that the following week, I'm out of town next week, and uh, that way we can start up on the 13th in our next study. Let's read chapter 3 again. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, for every good work. Now last week in, chapter, in, in verses one to nine, we looked at the ruin of submitting to error. And we see the, um, uh, earlier in this book, uh, Paul has, has talked about how you, first you have the turning aside, then you have the fall, and then you have the plunge. And so it's giving the idea, it's like, um, it's like the roller coaster uh, when you're up at the top. And you just start coming off of the edge and it, you know, things are moving slowly, 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 and then more gradual and that's faster. And all of a sudden you hit the one where it's coming straight down and everything's moving very quickly. When you turn aside from truth, 
that's the slope you're on. When you turn aside from truth, you're replacing it with something. And at the beginning, that may not be something that is uh, tremendous. But as things keep moving, all of a sudden you find yourself further and further and further away and getting sucked into further and further and further error. And it is not without consequence. And so doctrine matters. When you turn aside from sound words, again, uh, uh, terms that, that Paul has used frequently here with Timothy and with Titus in the pastorals, the, the idea of sound words, what were two of the things? One is good. What was the other one? Sound. Hygienic. And so it's the idea of healthy. It's healthy words, healthy doctrine, the kind of truth that is going to help you and not the kind of, of error that is going to lead you astray. And these men who fall away into error, they oppose God. They oppose God's truth. And the word that's used there when they're talking about an opposition to the truth is the same word that is used for us when we are to resist the devil. We are to oppose the devil. And so it's the same thing here where we are supposed to take a stand in opposition to, and the idea is you're not backing down. This is, we are going to hold the line. We're going to hold ground against opposition that's trying to move us off. That's the way that these men are, except their opposition is against God's truth. So just as there's the ruin of submitting to error, there's a reward for holding to the truth. And again, see how Paul often here is contrasting for Timothy's sake. Look, Timothy, here's the bad side. Here is the, the error. Here's the consequences of if you don't hold firm. Here's the bad side of that. But on the other hand, here, is, here are promises of God that are for you. Here is, you know, there, there's great difficulty. Timothy, you're going to be persecuted. I've been persecuted. And why would you expect it to be any different for you than it's been for me? You know, Timothy, you know, Timothy knows very well where Paul is right now. And it's different than the last time around. Paul's in prison. Now, no, he's not under house arrest. He's under close arrest. He's already escaped martyrdom once. He does not expect to escape again. Now think about that for a moment. Many of you get Voice of the Martyrs. It's different, isn't it? When you read of people who are, who are persecuted for the name of Christ, 
but they're on another continent. They're in an entirely different culture. They're in a different ethnic group. People we've never met and will never meet this side of heaven. For them to be persecuted is, something, is one thing. But what's it going to be like when all of a sudden it's somebody who we know? And now they're writing to you. Or they're emailing you. Probably not emailing. Doubtful they'd have access to a computer or a cell phone. But somehow they get word to you. And they're encouraging you to do the very same thing that they have done that has brought them to the point where they are facing death for the cause of Christ. And yet that's, again, what Paul keeps coming back to again and again and again. And so now here he begins to remind Timothy, Timothy, you have seen this, what I'm going to tell you, you've seen this with your own eyes. You have followed my teaching. And let's just start taking these one at a time. Paul's teaching, when he uses that word, what's he talking about? Okay, you're killing me. We had such a good time last week. And today it's like... When Paul refers to his teaching, what is he talking about? Okay, the gospel. What's another word? If you were going to substitute for teaching, there's two words that you could substitute there, and you would be fine. Okay, three. Instruction. Keep going with that. Instruction falls under the, under the, there's an umbrella that you would talk about under instruction. Doctrine. And what's another word for doctrine? Truth. Okay? Obviously, I have not beat this horse. This horse ain't dead. All right? It's talking, he's talking about truth. Again, remember here that in the book, he is contrasting truth and error. And error is, is, is basically anything that is what? Not truth. You start teaching anything that's not God's truth, you're leading away, you're leading people astray. You're leading them into error. And so, Timothy, you have followed my teaching, doctrine truth and now note that's the that is the academic if you want to use that word here that's the that's the academic side now look what it immediately leads into and and by the way there are uh, if you were going to take this straight out of the greek it's 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 my teaching my conduct my purpose my faith those are all tied directly to him. So you followed my teaching, which leads into conduct. So he's beaten another horse here. What's the link between teaching and conduct? Doctrine dictates actions. Exactly. Okay, so again, Paul, again, and you would think, all right, 
why are you making a big deal about this? Do you know why we need to make a big deal about this? Because this is one of the main problems in Christendom. There's a lot of people who have it in their head that they can give lip service to God and they can read, they can hear God's word, but somehow there's no requirement that they actually do what God says. And there's a problem with that now, isn't there? Please tell me one place, one place in Scripture where it says it is enough to hear what God says and you're okay. One. Can you give me one? What is the constant, consistent message in Scripture? It's hearing and doing, hearing and keeping. There, ha you know, again, you can go to Matthew seven. Um, you know, the one who hears my word and does it. Okay, he's the wise man who builds his house on the rock, right? In the book of Revelation that we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, for chapter one, you get you run into this very thing: he who hears these words and keeps it. So again, the idea here is that what you believe to be true is going to dictate what it is that you do. Therefore, it follows that you can look at someone's conduct and get an idea as to what it is they truly believe to be true. And so if you're hearing the gospel and you say that you are, you know, you're a Christian, you are turning your life over to Jesus Christ, you have forsaken your old ways and you are, you are going down new paths, and yet there is no measurable change in your conduct, something is very wrong. People should be able to look at you since your, after your conversion and see a difference. And frankly, it ought to be a significant difference. Now, is that immediate? Not necessarily. That may take time. I've told you before, one of the things that, um, that spoke to me greatly growing up, I saw my dad, when I was young, had a temper. He had, a, he, he, he had a temper. I've told you the story where he karate chopped the coffee table. I haven't told that. Okay, some of you have. You, if you want to hear it, I'll tell you later. Over the years, I saw the change in my dad to where that changed. Later in life, he was not a man characterized by anger. And so I can, over the course of time now, because I was closely associated with him, I could see how, when I was young, how he responded to certain things. And then later in life, given the same type of circumstances, his responses were markedly different. You could see the sanctifying work of the Spirit in his life. We should be able to have that very same thing. Now, especially for some of us in here, because some of us have gray hair, we've been married for a long time now. Our spouse should be able to say, I remember what you were like when we were newlyweds. And now that we have got 20, 30, 40, 50 for some of you, 
years under the tires that the way that you were is no longer the way that you are today. You're different. That's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That should be happening. And if you don't have that, if your spouse looks and goes, you know what, yeah, yeah, you're, you're just the same, then there's a problem. So, Timothy, you followed my teaching, you followed my conduct, you followed my purpose. Now, conduct, Paul's manner of life, how he's putting principles into action. What about his purpose? When you think of Paul, hopefully there's a couple of, of, of phrases that come to your mind when it talks about, if you were going to think about Paul's, uh, how does he look at life? So I put a couple of references in there for you there. Philippians 1.21. Now, you may not know that one by memory, but if I start it, I'll bet you can finish it. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. So for me to live is Christ. That's who motivates me. That is the direction that I go in life. If you go to 1 Corinthians 9.16, again, I'll start it. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And so again, Paul has got something in him that will not stay just in him. He is going to speak that which is in him. He is going to proclaim that truth. And you cannot stop him. Is it because Paul himself is an irresistible force? Okay, Rick, you're shaking your head. Why is it? Why is it that it is woe to him if he doesn't preach the gospel? Yeah, it is in and it has to come out because to live is Christ. And so again, he's compelled. You cannot stop him. Now we have someone in our congregation here who was a founding pastor of this church. And he's not on the elder board anymore. But can, you know, uh, and I'm sorry to talk about you because you're here. I'm actually, I'm not sorry to talk about you. I lied just now. He's no longer on the older board. But there's something that I've noticed about him in the months now, and I guess year or two, that he's not been on the board. Has he changed? Oh, I see, I see a bunch of you in here. Okay, yes and no. Most of them, no. Why? He's not an elder, but he's never stopped elding because that is part of who he is. And so, you're, you, and, and again, this is who Paul is. He is an apostle. He is a sent one. And he doesn't stop going. He is the gospel version of the Energizer Bunny. You can't stop this guy. And again, it's because that is the, the work of God that's in him 
And it is the work of God that is pushing on through him. You followed my faith. See, now we're, re- we're, we're studying a book. It's the last letter that he writes, right? At least the last one that we know of. It's the one that's recorded for us in Scripture. Is Paul going out with a whimper? No. No. Paul's going out on the high note. You think Paul is living with regret here? Is he writing with regret? No. No. Next week, David gets to do chapter 4. I finished the course. I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. Right? Paul is looking back. Has it been easy? No. No, it hasn't. You know the hard thing, you know, when when you've been beaten five times, the first time, what's it like? You don't know because it's the first time. Every time after that, as he is carrying the message and proclaiming the message and putting himself into the position where that is going to be the anticipated response. He knows what it feels like. And yet, he carries on anyway. And so, if you're going to act that way, if you're going to live that way, you'd better have faith. What is, and again, in fact, Paul would argue that that is the natural consequence of having faith. You don't persecute somebody if they're not actually holding that course. You don't have to. The threat was enough to make them change. Paul has big faith. And in fact, how does he refer to his own faith? For for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced. I am sure. And because I am convinced, and because I am sure, then that is going to dictate my actions here. His faith, his patience. Now, this word patience is macrothumia, which is often translated long-suffering. Long-suffering kind of is self-explanatory now, isn't it? Long-suffering is often used when dealing with difficult people. And you, ju- you, you, you bear under it. And so sometimes you'll see this translated steadfast, long-suffering, here it's translated patience. And the idea again is you endure. And you don't, you, 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 and it's not just enduring, but it is righteous enduring, which means it's going to be in the line of cheerful enduring, non-reviling enduring, non-bitter enduring. 
So you stay and you bear and you keep under without resentment, without bitterness, without pointing your finger and, and just, you know, uh, you know what, I'm going to put up with you, but I really wish God would strike you dead in about 15 seconds. That's the idea here of, of macrothumia. Love. Again, when you, when you talk about love, who's the focus of love? Is it you? It's the other, right? You're putting their interests ahead of yours. You're concerned about what is good for them. And then perseverance. Perseverance is the other word. This is hupomone, which is the backpacking word. That's the one where you keep your shoulder under the load and you just, you know, one foot after another and you keep plodding on. All of those point to the idea of fidelity, faithfulness. Paul has led a faithful life now, hasn't he? Now, Paul's got his abrasions too. And those are, those are encountered in scriptures. There's, there's times when Paul is not necessarily very patient with somebody. Isn't it interesting that you tend to see that Paul is even changing with that as he ages and as he is being more sanctified? Can you think of somebody with whom Paul was not necessarily very patient? John Mark. Remember, John Mark goes with he and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, and they get into it. They don't even get all the way in. John Mark never got to Antioch and to Iconium and to Lystra. So John Mark wasn't around there when things really got difficult. He split before that. And so now all of a sudden it's time for them to go out again. Barnabas wants to take John Mark, and, and Paul says, no way, no way, no how. He skipped out on us. He, the going went tough and he went shopping. He didn't stick it out. So we're not going to, we're not going to, no, no, no. And in fact, it was such a disagreement that what happened? Paul and Barnabas end up splitting up. We'll have to talk about that someday because Barnabas is one of the unsung heroes of Scripture. And so here you have them splitting up. Paul takes Silas. Barnabas takes John Mark. He goes off to, uh, to Cyprus. And now, however, you get to the end of life. You'll get to this next, next week in chapter 4. Because here's Paul. Timothy, come see me. And I want you to bring somebody with you. I want you to bring John Mark. Because he'll be useful to me. And so Paul is being sanctified over time. And Timothy has been able to see that as well. So you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, and then the last two, persecutions and sufferings. And yet Timothy has been there to see it. There's no indication that Timothy has personally, actually suffered these things at this moment. Timothy was present in Philippi when Paul was beaten. And he ends up in the Philippian jail with the Philippian jailer. But Timothy wasn't beaten. 
And there were other occasions where Timothy escaped the physical persecution that Paul endured. Now, Timothy has been there for stiff spiritual opposition. Timothy is experiencing that now because he's in Ephesus and there's trouble in Ephesus. There's distinct trouble in Ephesus. Timothy is certainly going to know what it is to be physically persecuted. At the end of the book of Hebrews, you see that uh, our brother Timothy has been set at liberty. Now, is it you know, for sure that that is the same Timothy? Well, it's probably the same Timothy. And so Timothy's going to know what it is to go to jail. Tradition has it, Timothy was beaten to death because he opposed evil. And so Timothy is very well aware of what has happened to Paul. And Paul even lays it out for him, you know, again, um, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Now, do you find it interesting that you hear Paul use the word or use the, the idea that God rescued him from those sufferings? Did that mean, does that mean that God prevented him from enduring them? See, so often we look at um, <laughs> when we get sick, what's the first thing we're doing? Spiritually, in church life, if somebody is sick, what do people immediately start doing? Praying for them to get better. Praying for them to be relieved of their difficulty. Now, I am not a glutton for pain. I dislike pain as much as anybody. But the fact of the matter is, and that's something I need to come to, to, to grips with, um, if I'm in pain, why am I in pain? What's the overarching reason as to why that's happening to me at any given moment? That's right. God wants me there. That's right. See, now again, this goes back to faith, by the way. Faith, teaching, tells me, truth tells me, that God is utterly sovereign over all of the affairs of men and the planet. There is nothing that happens that is outside of his purview. Moreover, that there is nothing that God takes all of these things that are not pleasant, that are not inherently good in and of themselves, but yet he causes those things to work together for good for those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. That's truth. 
And so these things that are difficult are brought intentionally. And again, remember that the man who God spoke through to write those words had lots to say about difficulty. Right? So when you look in 2 Corinthians 11 and you see the laundry list of the persecutions, the physical persecutions that Paul endured, yet he would look at the very same moment and say that God delivered me out of every one of those. Paul was able to come through all of those without an attitude of bitterness. Why was Paul not bitter about how he was treated? It's in this verse. It's here. You followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love. You see, if I'm loving people the way that God loves people, then <laughs> Jesus is on the cross. What's one of the last sayings of Jesus hanging on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Paul himself, in this book, it is a trustworthy saying, for, uh, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. I am chief of all. Why was Paul shown mercy? Because he acted in ignorance. He was shown mercy. Paul then turns and he extends that to others. It takes love to do that. These people are lost in their sin. They are held captive by the evil one to do his will. And so, go back to chapter 2, right? The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, in gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perchance God might grant them repentance, that they may come to their senses and be freed from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Paul bears the brunt. And he, in love, he keeps preaching the truth, but not in a reviling way, with no bitterness, with no resentment. And again, Timothy was from Lystra grew up there and so he knew full well that Paul got stoned there so Timothy all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted this is your lot in life this is what is coming for you so get ready start start you know accept that now so that you can prepare yourself to respond in a godly way when all of a sudden it's happening to you. 
Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now again, there are some who preach a false gospel. Do they necessarily understand that what they are preaching is a false gospel? Okay, I see several of you. Joe, I see you shaking your head. How is it that they might not understand that what they're preaching is a false gospel? Okay, they're deceived. They're deluded. The idea of being deceived, when you're deceived, do you think that you're in error or do you think that you're right? You think you're right, right? When Eve was deceived and acted on what she believed to be true, how did she come to realize that, oops, what I believe to be true wasn't true at all? She experienced something immediately. What did she experience? Shame, right? Brand new experience for them, right? They've never had that one before. How do you come to avoid shame? He talks about that. Paul talks about this also with Timothy. One of the ways that you learn to avoid shame, you keep repressing your conscience. And that leads to a condition. What's the condition? The seared conscience, right? You keep touching something hot enough, eventually, okay. <laughs> My wife has got asbestos fingers. She can pick up things that are hot that if I even look at it, I'm getting burned. Why is that? Because of repeated exposure. She keeps picking up things that are hot. If she tells me something is hot, I'm grabbing some gloves before I even touch it. And so that's the idea there. Her fingertips are seared to, um, to the normal feeling that, that you and I might have. I know that, that I would have. And so here again, there's, there's a contrast here that Paul does with Timothy. These guys, these evil men, they're deceived, they're being deceived, and they're going from bad to worse. They're, they are heading, they're on the roller coaster, and they're on the downward slide, and they're on the plunge side. They're in the plunge end of this. They're going to keep getting worse. You, however... You continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. You held the course, Timothy. You hold the line. You know the truth. You have acted on the truth. You keep teaching the truth. You continue on in the line of Ezra. What do I mean by that? What was Ezra's response? How did Ezra view his mission in life? He knew the law. He studied the law. What was next? He kept the law. And then he taught the law. You don't want to have somebody who knows it 
and go straight over to teaching it without having the actual step of they do it themselves. Timothy, you've watched my example. You continue in the things that you've learned. And Timothy, you've become convinced of them yourself, right? These are the things that you know to be true. So, when you face opposition, you, stay, you hold the course, you hold the line. Verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now again, earlier in this book, we met two women that were influential in Timothy's life. Remember those two women? Mom and grandma, right? Lois and Eunice. And so Timothy has had the blessing that over the course from his youth, he had faithful, a faithful mom, a faithful grandma, who knew the truth and who taught him the truth. They exposed him to God's word. Now, some of you know that in your own, your own heritage, your own history. I will be forever grateful that I had a mom and dad who loved Jesus, who pointed me to him, who knew the truth, who lived the truth, and they taught it. They wanted to be missionaries. God made it to where they couldn't be missionaries in a foreign country, and so they were missionaries to my two sisters and I. And then they were missionaries to many others over the course of time just in the normal, everyday functions of life. My dad did not have that. My dad was, he wasn't raised in home anyway. He grew up in foster homes and orphanages. He didn't have that heritage. God rescued him and made it possible that we, his children, would have it. And it may be for you that you don't have that heritage. You didn't grow up with that. But can I tell you something that can happen? You can make this true for your kids. Maybe you didn't have it. But it is something that you can, in fact, begin now that you would be that impact in their lives. Timothy, you've had the heritage. You've known the writings. And by the way, when we talk about the sacred writings that Timothy had growing up, what's Paul referring to? The Old Testament. Wait a minute. You mean the Old Testament is enough to teach you how to be godly? You know, there's a lot of folks in Christendom, that would be a novel thought. And so, yeah, all of that stuff in the Old Testament, again, what is Paul written about that? All of that stuff was written for our example. 
So Timothy, you've had this. And it's enough to lead you to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And now here's one of those, what Dave uh, a few weeks ago referred to as one of those epitomizing texts. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, just start at, start at the first word, all. Now, all scripture is inspired by God. That means the genealogies, that means the histories, that means all those sections that so often we tend to skip over. All right, in your reading plan, who lately has been in Chronicles? Okay, Chronicles. Boy, and in fact, you, you get it in Chronicles, you'll get it in Ezra, you get it in Nehemiah, you get it in the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. You get these long lists of people, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and then they begat this person, and they begat this one, and, and it just goes on and on and on. Are those inspired? Yeah, they are. Are they important? Keisha, you're nodding your head. Why are they important? Okay, so you have the lineage of Jesus and you have, and, and these other people as well, right? Right, so names show up that, that show up in other places. What is, when you have all of a sudden, you have all these generations laid out, what's one of the things that God is communicating there? God is faithful. And his faithfulness spans decades, centuries, millennia. He's a faithful God. And you start looking at these names, those, those are names that were known to God. Names that you and I look at, number one, we have a hard time pronouncing them. And yet, God knew them. All of it is inspired. Now, what does it mean to be inspired by God? What's the word literally mean? Breathed out. Breathed out. It's breathed out by God. It's the idea of speaking. God has proclaimed this. If you're going to be a faithful Christian, the message that you proclaim is, should be the same one that God himself has proclaimed. Where we get into trouble is where we start proclaiming something that God has not. That's error. So what I am proclaiming is to be the same thing that God himself has proclaimed. 
And so God has breathed this out. God has spoken this. this the origin is God himself. And not only is it God breathed, but it is profitable. It is of good use. It is truthful. It is something which is going to impart benefit to those who hear and do, right? And then he lists out here the things that Scripture is good for. It's profitable for teaching. So what, is, what does he mean here in this context here of teaching? It's profitable. All Scripture is profitable for teaching. When you teach, when you, when you are proclaiming God's truth, what are, you, what are you proclaiming? This is what is true. This is what is right. So here is what we should be doing. This should be our response to what God has proclaimed to be true. How is it that I take what God has proclaimed to be true to now put over and uh, influence my conduct, right? We're supposed to have that tie between there's teaching and then that teaching doctrine is to influence my actions. I am to take these principles in Scripture and I am to put them into practice. And so teaching tells me Here's what's right. What's reproof? When do you have to reprove somebody? When they're not right, when they did what was wrong. So, um, I am confronted about, uh, okay. Uh, many years ago, I was lying on the upper bunk in my room, which was kind of silly since I had my own room. I don't know why I was in the upper bunk. And I got a red crayon. Yes, I remember the details. And I drew a lowercase f on the ceiling in my bedroom. I was the only occupant of the bedroom. Mom and dad had those letters up around the ceiling, you know, high up on the walls, you know, so that I would learn the alphabet and all of that. And my dad came in and he sees the red Crayola F on the ceiling and he asked me a question. What do you think that question was? What do you mean? <laughs> Who drew the F on the ceiling? Did you, son? Draw the F on the ceiling. To which I replied, no. I have no idea how that got there. Maybe it was spontaneous generation. It just happened. Now, was that true? No, what did I just do? I just lied. And dad reproved me. He brought my lie to my attention. Now, did I know that I had told a lie? Oh, yeah. And he brought it to my attention. That is reproof. 
Reproof is bringing the offense in front of the person who has committed the offense. It is bringing it to their attention. You, here was the teaching. Here's what was right. The reproof is, here is how you violated what was right. Here's what, what you did here was wrong. It is not, did not meet this standard. That's reproof. Dad did not stop there. Then there was something called correction. What's correction? Now look, all of us in the room, we're beyond this, the age, right, of a spanking. And I got a, I got a whopper. Significant enough that, you know, 55 years later, I still remember that. All right? Best spanking I ever got. Couldn't sit down for a week. But I learned something. Better not lie. Better not lie. Correction. Okay, teaching, here's what's right. Reproof, here's what you did that violated that. Correction, here's how you fix that. Here's, here's, the, here's the antidote. Here's the prescription for being able to fix what it was that you just did that violated the teaching. Uh, well, you can't separate one out from the all. The question is of those four things, which is the most important. And you can't separate out any of them. Yes, you can. You can? Yes. Which one? The reproof. No, you can't. Yes, you can. If you don't give the reproof, don't tell them why All the rest are insignificant. They're just Oh, you're saying so that the reproof is the most important? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I would go there it, for, for this reason, for this reason. Again, what God is wanting us to do, God is wanting us to be sanctified. He's wanting us to change inherent, internally that is then manifested externally. And so that's where, um, you know, a, a word that we would use other than reproof what, what, what might be another word when you are bringing something to somebody's attention? Okay, there's rebuke. Okay, I, I kind of use the, the definition of the word. To bring to somebody's mind. Okay, anybody who's been to Walnut Creek for the biblical counseling classes, you ought to be on this like white on rice. Admonish. Nuthateo, to bring to the mind, to bring to the attention. And so the idea is, is that I have sinned, I am confronted with my sin, here's how I, 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 I deal with the consequences of that. And then, fourth step is training in righteousness. What's that? Here's how you don't do it again. Here's the things that you can do to where now you avoid that. So, I've been knocked off course, I have gone over here, I get admonished, I get reproved, and now there's correction, and now, boom, here's the training so that I don't go down that path again. And so again, God's, God's 
word here, God's truth here, is comprehensive. That's why it is the standard of faith and practice. If you want to talk about godliness, God's given us everything in his word that we may do that, that we may be that. And there's a purpose for all of that, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That word um, adequate is complete, sufficient, completely qualified. You've got, you're not missing a tool in your toolbox. You have everything you need. I was talking with uh, one of my sons driving here this morning. He's got an electrical problem in his car. And he's having, he seems, it just seems that every time I turn around, there's another tool that I got to get in order to be able to diagnose or in order to be able to, to deal with this situation here. God's word gives us every tool that we need. We're not lacking anything here. It is our duty, it's our job to know God's word, to be submissive to it, to be subject to it, and to take all the tools that God gives us here and learn how to use them in our own lives so that then we're also able to help others. And we don't have time. I would encourage you. There's a term here that is used, the man of God. I would encourage you, trace that through the Bible. That is a rich term. And for Timothy, that had to be something that was incredibly encouraging. You'll find that term applied to Moses. You'll find it applied to many of the prophets. In fact, of all, I think it's used 39 times in Scripture. In all but one, it is inherent, it's implicit in the use of the term that it is it's one who proclaims the truth of God. The man of God is one who is proclaiming God's word. And it is that guy that God wants to have fully equipped. Now, therefore, in this room, who are to be the men of God? It's all of us. Okay, ladies, women. The point is, is that what makes the man of God, the one who is carrying God's message, the one that makes him complete, the one that makes him sufficient, the thing that makes him sufficient is not himself. It is God's word. That is what makes him adequate. It's not gifting. It's not, it's not something, it is God's word. It is knowing it, it is living it, and then it is proclaiming it. Okay, questions? You guys have been pretty quiet this morning. Rick.
Uh, Rick's point is that um, because God's word is sufficient, then it's not a tool that needs another tool in order to be able to accomplish its work. You don't have to have the Bible plus anything. There's nothing else that's needed. So therefore, when you see something, when you are presented with an ideology that says... You know, the Bible, well, that's great. But it, you really need this in order to explain the Bible. You need to have, uh, to, to pick on something that's current. You know, yeah, God's, you know, the Bible, yeah, whatever. What you really need is narrative. What you really need is intersectionality. What you really need is somebody who, you know, you're not applying a principle. You need to listen to somebody who's a particular ethnic group or a particular gender or a particular uh, lifestyle or, or any of those things. Those, that is what carries weight. It's not what God says. That's, that again, that should be, that should be getting the, the arms flailing danger Will Robinson. I don't know if you heard that. Somebody pulled that. They, they found a, a, a YouTube thing on that. And they were actually playing it a few weeks ago. Danger, Will Robinson. So CRT is guilty of that. But I can I tell you, there's a whole bunch of other things that get brought into that. What is CRT? Critical race theory. That was a book that we were going over while you guys were... We're sick. <laughs> um, but I tell you what, there's all kinds of other things that get brought in. You folks that go down to Walnut Creek for the biblical counseling classes, what do you run into? How do you, how do you counsel somebody when it comes to spiritual problems? If it's a, you, you better be using God's word because if you start bringing in man's reasoning, man's thinking, read into that, psychology, man's thing, version of how to, how, to, how to solve different issues. You just brought in a tool that's outside God's toolbox. If you bring in a tool that's not from God's toolbox, it's not gonna work. Like trying to take a metric tool and apply it to a standard tool. They just don't fit. It just doesn't work. And it's far worse than that, actually. You end up doing a lot more damage. Other questions? Okay, Dave's going to finish it off next week. And then on the 13th, we'll start Revelation. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for faithful men. Thank you for examples that you have given to us of, of men who knew your truth, who, who did it and who have taught it. Thank you for men that you have given to us who have done those same things. And Father, help us to, to be those who, who hold on to sound words, who hold on to the truth, who learn to identify error and turn away from it. And Father, help us to be faithful. It, the day is coming, it sure seems that when we're going to start to 
uh, get a taste for persecution and for sufferings. And Lord, as you were faithful to Paul in that day, you will be faithful to us. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us not to deny you, to deny your truth, but that we would be those who, who hold to it and, and, and live it and uh, do not shy away, do not turn away. Help us not to be ashamed of you or of your gospel. In Christ's name, amen.